Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Mick Mulhall, CEO of Mulhall's Nursery. In today's show, Mulhall talks about the Irish roots and multi-generational history of Mulhall's Nursery, and how the business is adapting to current climate and environmental issues that demand we be better stewards of our natural world. Mulhall also talks about the importance of our relationship with the beauty of Mother Nature and shares his own story of growth in the business and beyond. My entree to plants and plant things wasn't practical. It wasn't purposive. It's a part of who I am. It's a part of who we are, right? It's this part of me that makes me me. And when I don't engage in it, it feels like I'm missing out, I think, on a significant part of the human condition. Mick Mulhall grew up working in the family business, driving for landscape crews as soon as he got his license. He's a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and, of course, Mulhall's really long days landscaping school of management. Mulhall's grandfather, John, who trained as a gardener in Ireland, immigrated in 1953. And now, three generations later, Mick Mulhall is the CEO for a team committed to making Omaha a more beautiful place to live. Mick Mulhall, welcome to Lives. Thank you. So it feels like a good place to start with an observation from acclaimed biologist and writer, Rachel Carson, who said that our origins are of the earth. And it feels like an appropriate epigraph, as it were, for our conversation to begin. And so the beginning question, I think, has to be around your grandparents. Who were they? What was it like being an island? And how was it they came to immigrate to America? Yeah. So their names were John and Maureen. They were both born in 1922 and they were born in different places in Ireland, but both in relatively rural Ireland. Uh, you know, John was born in, in a town called Tinnahealy in County Wicklow, Maureen in, in a town called Boyle in Roscommon. And it, it is remarkable how different what their early life would have been like compared to mine and how even, even how different their two early lives were. My, my grandfather I was born on a about a 40-acre family farm. He was the oldest of seven. And, you know, 1922, an important time in Ireland, right, where I, the Republic of Ireland had just become independent. And, and because of that, and because of how long the fight was, right, there's this unique pride for what Ireland is, despite the things I think that we think of today as, or I grew up in, in the United States, of, of where my pride was grounded, right? It was much more pride of, of like, there was like a storytelling tradition and a, like there was something ro more romantic about it because there's no natural resources to hang your hat on, right? So you grew up in a small town and uh, grew up working the farm, but I think interestingly and importantly, decided relatively early on that that wasn't going to be his life. And in, in Ireland, it's, it's different, right? Because he was the oldest, he was going to and ended up actually inheriting the family farm. Um, but despite that, started to work at a local uh, nursery. Uh, the, the none so hardy nursery up the road, it was called. And, and from there, got into gardening and ended up going to a uh, technical school in Dublin and then taking a full-time job at, of all places, the American Ambassador's Residence in Ireland, which if you've ever been to Dublin, 
So, so Phoenix Park is kind of like the national mall almost. And, and the American ambassador's residence is, is in Phoenix Park on that mall. And so he worked there as the head groundskeeper. He had a house. To, to rewind though, um, my grandmother, his wife, Maureen, she grew up in Boyle. Her father was a painter, passed away when she was 13. So 1935 and you know, 1935 in Ireland, there wasn't a significant like welfare program, right? And so uh, Maureen and her family in, in a lot of ways had to split up, right? And they went to my grandma and her uh, older sister. Her older sister really brought her to the, um, a series of large houses where they worked, I think is what we would call today uh, handmaids, right? Um, she progressed, she worked hard, progressed ultimately into the kitchen. And then she got a new better job as the head cook at the American ambassador's residence in Ireland. And so as my grandfather would tell the story, they fell in love. As my grandmother uh, would tell the story, hardened by that childhood, would tell the story, he had a house. And uh, so they married. And then importantly to, to how I got here, the American ambassador to Ireland at the time was a man named Francis Matthews. Uh, he was the former secretary of the Navy and you know, uh, became the ambassador to Ireland. and. Um, encouraged this young Irish couple to immigrate to the United States. And they're from rural Ireland. They didn't know much about that. And he encouraged them not only to move to the United States, but to move to Omaha, Nebraska. And put them up at his carriage house. In his carriage house, you know, they lived above his garage when they moved here in, in, in 53. So that's how they got here. And uh, Wicklow, if you've ever been there, it's called the, gar- the county is called the Garden of Ireland, right? It's right off the Gulf Stream, and it's this incredibly beautiful, lush place. Um, the trees literally grow over the streets into tunnels. It's like this amazingly idyllic, when, when it's not raining, place. Uh, the family farm is actually next to an oak woodland uh, from which a lot of the, the bigger buildings in London were built, right? These, these oak trees were uh, milled there and, and brought over. It's just this incredibly natural place with this incredibly long history. And so you can imagine how jarring it would be to move to Omaha, Nebraska in 1953. How did that land with them insofar as they shared those stories with you? Um, Transitioning from one place to another is always both full of potential and joy, but also difficulty and challenge of adjusting to a different kind of place and environment and lifestyle. So how did they find that adjustment? Yeah, I think remarkably different people. As, as gregarious as my, as my grandfather was, my, my grandmother was abstemious. You know, for, for John, I think he loved the newness and he loved the, uh, the opportunity. But I know he really missed like I told you, like the, like the, the, there's a culture to Ireland of being proud of the place, and 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 there's this this sense of identity of knowing where you're from. And as much as I think, and I think he was really he was really conflicted. He would he dabbled in poetry, and uh, he would write about uh, how much he missed, you know, and and what it was like to go back, how much he missed the place, and what it was like to go back and and to see it without the people that he knew. My grandmother, on the other hand, yeah, she I mean she was a worker. She was incredible. But she wasn't very interested in questions about whether or not she missed Ireland. So your parents, they came with your grandparents from Ireland or were they born here? Yeah, so, so my father was born here. So he was born a few years after they moved here. My, all, they had all their children in America. 
my mother is actually from New Orleans of all places. That's a whole nother, it's a whole nother story. That's a different flavor of wilderness, Southern, you know, South of New Orleans. But my dad and uncles were raised in this, in a house, right? Where at once with this very, like this gardening tradition, the most romantic sense, but also with all of the anxious vigilance of an immigrant starting and, and trying to operate a business and trying to to make leaving so much behind worth it. What is it for you that stands out from your childhood? You know, you don't, it's funny as a, as a kid, while you, you're collecting a ton of information, right? You're not necessarily processing it. And I think two things, I, I, I'm so fortunate to have been around people my entire life uh, with such a clear sense of, of who they are and who they want to be and what matters to them. And I didn't understand that until later, right? But my father and, and my mother and my grandparents who lived here in Omaha, like they cared so much about something that wasn't them. And it happens to be a business today. But like this problem where we sit in it right now, we're near Creighton University and there's a hill of sumac that my, my grandfather was deeply proud of. The, he, was, uh, he was Creighton University's first full-time gardener. And so he's deeply proud of the, the physical contribution that he made there and that, that still exists. I mean, I was a, like an extremely, as my father says, an extremely hard kid to raise. You know, I got in a lot of trouble and I, I did a lot better outside than inside. But it was, you know, it was always available to go back to, right? And it was always there, this, this thing that ultimately, like that I've committed my career to. Um, and you're kind of, uh, yeah, underpinning, I think, like all of this pretty normal adolescent, you know, childhood and adolescent striving to figure out what I wanted to be. <laughs> Obviously, I want to talk about the business. But before I talk about the business and your journey into it, I want you to think a little bit more broadly about nature. And so there's a quote I want you to share, which is we go into nature a little like we go into church or to cultural and arts experiences, because we encounter something that transfigures us, makes us wonder, it makes us feel simultaneously exalted and humble. For you, what, what is it about our relationship with nature that, that matters so much? You know, it's funny how, for me, how much of this has been a rationalization, right? Like it wasn't, it wasn't some conscious choice. I, I mean, how did I get into this? We've always talked about, but I suppose like really I got, I got indefinitely suspended from my Catholic grade school and my dad was furious and he knew that I was excited that I didn't have to go to school. I didn't have to go to class. And so he started to, he made me worry. I went to work. I don't know how they worked this out, but I went to work, I think two or three days a week during, instead of going to school. And, you know, there, I was just embedded in this, right? Like in a way that most, I think, suburban, Midwestern, Catholic school students don't experience, right? Like I was hanging out with Nancy and Pete and they were telling me about what the trees were, you know, and I say, and, and Pasquale and Marcos, and they were shooting morning doves with slingshots, right? And I you know, they shouldn't do that, but they were. Right. And, and, and I was 13 and right. And, 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 and I'm learning Spanish. Right. And like this world opened up and 
I think later in life, I've tried to put more words to it. And I like to read and I, th- I think that's well put. And I think that for me, like my entree to plants and plant things wasn't like practical. It wasn't purposive. It was much more from the, like, as I, as I like to think about it, like it was, it's just a, it's like a, it's a part of who I am. It's a part of who we are, right? It's this thing that, uh, it's this part of me that makes me me. And when I don't engage in it, it just feels like I'm not actualizing what I, what I am, right? Potentially, right? And it feels like I'm missing out, I think, on a significant part of, of like the human condition. And if you know it, you don't feel a super strong need to, to put words to it, right? Like I just, I don't need words to explain to myself why sunsets can be overwhelming. I know that they are. I think that the most articulate people that said on it, I think that, I think there were some, some German philosophers, maybe 18th century, when was Immanuel Kant? Yeah, uh, 1700s, like late 1700s. Okay, I think he was pretty clear. I thought he was super helpful to me in college, like understand this, right? This idea of like that it's it's almost extra rational. You know, there's this, he describes it as a free play between the imagination and understanding, right? But I think I think the American transcendentalists put it into like easier to digest words, but like, you know, it's like when you walk out of your house and you see the moon and 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 you get it, but the second you try to describe it to somebody else, it almost evaporates. When we try to subsume it to, to reason, to understanding, it goes away. And so I guess that's, that's to me what made me care. My career, though, has been more starting to realize that, uh-oh, this thing that I care about like a lot is, is under pretty devastating attack, you know? And that's a different, to me, an almost entirely different set of questions and issues than the existential nature of the beautiful. So we'll certainly come back then to that challenge that, that is no longer abstract about humans' interaction with climate change and, and what that means for us as a, as a people. Sticking a little bit, though, with that difficulty of experiencing the, the wonder of the natural world in ways that we find it hard to put language to, but we can feel it because we, we are, um, as I started with that Rachel Carson quote, our origins are of the earth. And so we are a part of it and we can feel that even if we can't describe it properly. But nonetheless, we therefore are trying to create man-made interventions or interactions or collaborations, sometimes sometimes competition with the natural world. And I think that does create some tensions. What are some of those tensions that you see when we're not just existing in the natural world we're actually trying to uh, create some sort of man-made interventions. What, you know, what kind of tensions does that raise for us? You know, it was, it was kind of it was eye-opening to me. There's this, this myth of the primitive prairie, right? When you live in, in Omaha and you, you think and you kind of get into the, the native plant world and, and you pretty quickly get to this place of, okay, what does it mean for us to restore this land to what it would have been like if humans didn't live here? That doesn't make any sense. Right. Not only do we live here, like humans have lived here for hundreds of years. Humans have farmed this land for hundreds of years. And so I, I think that it's it's what does it mean for us to live in concert with? And I think that participating in the beautiful, it doesn't require, I mean, it's amazing. Dense wilderness is, I mean, like I enjoy hiking, right? 
but it doesn't require that, right? There's these little moments. I was on a little walk yesterday with a few, as part of our new employee onboarding, we go on a little walk on this nature thing next to our business. And we got to watch three Northern flickers chase each other around. I mean, that was on 120th and Maple. You know, you could like see cars and three Northern flickers, you know, uh, doing what they do in the early spring. I think we spend so much time thinking about, and it makes sense, right? It's so nice to externalize problems. But I think that the, the problem is seldom the density of nature itself, right? I think the problem is, at least for me, so much more often my mental state and whether or not I am actually available to notice. You were heading towards a career pointing towards private equity or something to do with finance. That isn't what happened. And so I'm curious about what was it that was moving you in that direction initially and then the pivot, because as is pretty obvious, you lead this business at Mohors. So what was that pathway and what was the cause of the pivot? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I want to first disclaim, right? Like it's like a, it's like a, me saying that I was headed to a career in private equity. It's like a little kid being like, I was going to, I was on a path to the NBA, right? Like, you know, in that early college, you know, Hey, what do you want to do? Like, I don't know. They're like, what are you good at? I'm like, I'm good at math. Okay. Well, if you want to make as much money as possible with math, like that was like the context that I grew up in. If you want to maximize your earning power, the two biggest markets in the world at that time were healthcare and energy. So, and I'm not really interested in healthcare. So energy, you know, this is literally a friend of mine's dad kind of walked me through this analysis. And so, okay, how do I participate in energy? So I studied mechanical engineering for a couple of years. As it turns out, I don't think that's interesting at all. I remember this moment, this like intro to mechanical engineering class, the professor, who's a nice guy. He had the class raise their hand, like who works on their own cars and all these hands like enthusiastically shoot up. And I was like, I'm in the wrong place. I don't care at all. But anyway, I, I was doing that. And honestly, like it just kind of broke. Like in this weird, it's hard to describe, but the, my, my education had a very clear idea for me of what I should do based on what I was good at, but it had very little interest in what I was interested in. And so if you're good enough at math and you're, you're good enough at talking and you're disciplined enough and fast enough, right? Like they got clear plans for you. I mean, with one big caveat, I was always very misbehaved, but we were in the process of fixing that, right? It all broke at once my sophomore year of college where I just kind of like woke up one day. I remember where I was. It was winter and it was snowing. And I just realized like to that point in my life, I had been kind of just, uh, it had just been happening to me and not like in a, in a positive way. And it kind of freaked me out. And so I actually left school. Um, that summer and went and landscaped, but it, like in a different way, right? And I think that's when my life started to change. So how did, because it's not inevitable that you should have found your path, as it were, back returning to the family business. So there must have been some moments of choice, moments of decision-making that led you back to the family business in some way. For sure. So it's important to say that I grew up, and to go back to my grandfather, right? When when you have seven kids on an Irish farm 
of that size, a small farm, um, it's understood that only one family will inherit, and, and inherit's a weird word for a farm that size, but steward the farm. There's not a lot there. It can almost provide a livelihood. But the Irish people fought so hard to be able to own land that there's just a different relationship there than here. And especially, I think, with my grandfather's generation, that legacy I was raised with with our family business, where I, it was just understood that you don't ask to work in the family business. You might get asked, but probably not. Because I'm one of four, and my dad's business partner had five kids. I decided that what I was doing, I was at Notre Dame, that what I was doing didn't make sense, which is mechanical engineering. I didn't have a plan. I, I, I dropped out of Notre Dame. I think, I think the word is withdrew. And I went and worked with Miguel Guzman and uh, Juan Rodriguez, and we started landscaping for a summer. It was almost jarring how much more comfortable I was with these two middle-aged Mexican dudes than everyone that I went to college with. And we woke up super early. At that time, we would we'd work a ton. I was happy, and they were happy. And it's like, but I wasn't supposed to be, you know? So then I, I decided, um, I actually decided I want to be a landscape architect is what I decided, I wanted, which isn't something we do. We work for landscape architects quite a bit as a business and I talked to my parents about it and they're like, that seems like a great idea. You know, there's great landscape architects in New York and Philadelphia and, you know, Los Angeles and should do that. And so I actually went to Iowa State for a semester to study landscape architecture. and It was incredible. I had so much fun and it's kind of landscape architecture is this beautiful architecture. I mean, design generally, right? It's this beautiful blend of, of learning and, and philosophy, but also like creation, you know, and creativity. But the professors at the end of that semester are like, this is great. You should totally do this. But I would finish your undergraduate degree in Notre Dame because you already started there and then do this as a master's. And then really in the long story short, I did that and I took a year off. I planned to take a year off to build a portfolio to apply to grad school. And when I did that, I went to work for a guy, a really nice guy in Southern California um, at this place, like this idyllic garden center. It's like so, it's so beautiful. It didn't feel like real life. It's called Rogers Gardens. And I, and I was working there and, and he was nice enough to let me be involved in quite a few different things. And, and I came to find the pace of that really suited me. Like I really like plants. I like people. I like for the people that I care about to understand why I care about what I care about. And uh, I literally, I got a phone call in early October of that year where my dad was like, hey, so uh, there's a, a position just opened up at our store. So if you want to like do this, this would probably be a good time. And that was like, that was the buildup. And I'm like 22 or something. I was like, okay. And I just load all my stuff into a U-Haul and moved home. And now I guess it's been 10 years. Entering the business that way, in some ways, you know, possibly people listening might just think, well, obviously it seems inevitable, right? You've got this family history and it's inevitable that you would be in the business. And maybe that's easy to see that with hindsight, right? They didn't know me as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to any of my teachers, not inevitable. Well, so here we are though. And you're leading a team in this business. Is there something uniquely exciting, but also possibly uniquely challenging because you are in a family legacy. And I don't know if there's a sort of sense of responsibility to your ancestors that comes with that 
to steward the business in a certain way, in the same way that you might think about stewarding a natural landscape and the responsibility you have for that. Is there something extra special about being involved in stewarding a, a family legacy business? To be honest, not on that dimension. To me, it's incidentally a family business. The reason that I have my job and the reason that the people who came before me in like leadership roles in our company um, had their jobs wasn't so much because of the, it's incidentally a family business, also incidentally a business, right? Like I just care about the plants and plant things. I think the pressure comes from this, this deep desire and belief um, that I can grow a career in concert with the natural world, right? That I can make this, this the most meaningful thing in my life, like my work. And, and, and that I am now uh, like trying to steward this legacy, not of, you know, whatever, five mole halls, but like thousands of people who believed in the same thing over the last 60 some years now. That I think is, is a healthier pressure than like a family idea. And the other great thing about it is I can tell you that you know, my grandfather, my father, my uncle, they, they, they certainly care more about that than the fact that we're related to. So clearly you had this passion for the natural world. You mentioned that one year of almost, it felt like escape into the, the joy of landscaping and doing that hard work. Have you had to face in some ways the challenge of doing work that you love, but it also being a job, it's a career. It, it, maybe that gets in the way of the, the joy and the passion. Curious if you've had to navigate that tension. I think I see it a little differently. I, my experience with meaning um, is that it is much more built than discovered. And I, and I think that for me, it's been much the opposite, that what makes it so obvious to me that I'm doing the right thing is that the more I do it and the more intensity I do it with, and frankly, even the more pressure I feel from it, um, the more it matters to me. Like, I'm not going to lie, the last two years of my life, right? Like we are a brick and mortar retail store, right? And COVID, and as practical as this is, there's like a road in front of it, right? And there's a road to the side because we're on a corner. And both of those got removed, <laughs> which is something cities do, which also makes it hard for customers to to get the plants. And when the customers can't get the plants, it's hard to, you know, run a business. This is, these are things I'm learning. I've been fortunate enough that I haven't had a lot of stress and I don't like, I'm not a very stressed person, but the last few years have been as trying as any, but despite it, like the, the antidote for me is if I just like go fishing, right. Or go for a walk. If you could, if I can remember to do it, if I, if I notice the birds on the Platte river, like when I'm driving over it, it gets a lot easier to deal with. I can't imagine not having that. Then yes, it would be unbearable. Over these last few years, what have been some of the challenges that you've had to um, meet and surmount to lead the business successfully? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's like a whole host of practical daily business things, but I think the biggest by far has been the, the real emotional impact of the upheaval to the to to all of our daily lives of the pandemic and just how how hard it is for a business right because like a business, like what's our job our job is to is to balance the the wants and needs of our customers and 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 team 
and defined an equilibrium point where we're you know we're we're providing services at, at prices that are reasonable and, and and paying the people that 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 work at our place as much as we can. If we do those two things well, good things happen. And if it gets out of balance, bad things happen. I think people are under a unique amount of pressure right now for a whole host of reasons. I think frankly we're grieving through a lot of the grind of the few years that were the that were the pandemic and the lockdown and everything that came from that. I think and I've heard it said, right, that a majority of people experience post-traumatic growth, right? A minority post-traumatic stress. And I think a lot of people are growing right now and asking questions that they didn't know how to ask before. And as a small business, um, navigating and responding to that change, I think it's positive change, but it's still change and navigating and responding to that while you're still just trying to kind of make the math work of a business has been hard. What are the trends that you're seeing? We talked a little bit earlier on climate, growing attentiveness to the environment. What is happening in your industry around the trends of what you want to do with the business and what you sell and do, and also customers, what they expect, and perhaps how those mindsets are changing? And then we can talk about what it, what is our bigger picture duty, perhaps, to the environment. Yeah, I think, because I, I think that's true. What what our business wishes it could do and what our business, you know, needs to do to address um, our customers are, are similar but different, right? When you have when you have people who spend every day, all day with a problem, they they oftentimes think about it differently, right? It takes a little bit more to make them interested than somebody new to something. But that said, I think I think two big things are happening in our or garden retail business, like there's a, a very significant generational transition happening right now. And it's my experience that those two generations have different wants and tastes. Um, that said, underneath that, I think that there is some very strong common ground, which is that and accelerated by the pandemic, I, you know, that, that environmental activism and consumer sentiment, right, have like converged in this very new way. I remember watching a commercial like a year and a half ago and Volvo showed a video of the ice caps melting and are like, we're making electric cars. And then the next one was, I think, another car company. And, and you know, it's just amazing how much people are talking about climate today when 15 years ago it was taboo, it was politicized. And so that's different. And I think also importantly different is that the only way that I think a lot of, of modern Americans know how to participate in something is to consume it. And if you take the, like a, a brand like Patagonia or more recently Cotopaxi, right? And these like incredible environmental missions and the CEOs of both of them say, but like, Hey, like we are self-aware. This is all going to a landfill. And I, I think that there is some virtue in the fact that plants, right? Like by their nature, fix carbon. It's like, you know, like the most mysterious, like one of the most mysterious things, right? It's how they do that. And I think that people are starting to kind of realize that, yeah, that there's meaning here in that and, and, and can participate in a way that they know how to participate. To the second part, the, the duty side, right? It's hard because um, as, a, as a business, there's what we, what we want to do, what we believe is right, and then there's what we're capable of doing. And, and we just talk about, look, we want to, we want to move it 10% closer uh, 10% closer to what we believe, you know, ecologically responsible. So if somebody comes in and 
you know, like zeal is off-putting oftentimes, right? To, to people who don't know a lot about something. And that takes some training. That's hard. But if somebody comes in looking for annual plants, getting them to a perennial is a positive change, right? And then maybe graduating into native cultivars and maybe into something like even more. I hope that answers your question. It does. I think there's so much more to talk about as regards how you are leading a business into the future. So a different way to kind of build on, on this is, is to ask you, to what degree do you see yourself as less responding to changing customer demands and or the fact that the environment is being you know, changed radically by human, um, by human action? as opposed to you leading the public more broadly into, you know, a, a way that we can live holistically for the next part of this century? Yeah, I, I think a great question. And I think that we are, we are much more as a, as a business responsive than, than leading. I think that there are people, people that we really look up to at local area not-for-profits, right? Like the, the actual ecologists and the actual biologists, right? That are, that are thinking so hard. We, we partner with different organizations and, um, you know, to hear how they're really thinking about land management. I think that's, who's really, who's really leading it. And then for us, you know, the spirit of the times, right? Like people are like, I've always kind of been into this and it was like this like funny thing. It was like this weird hobby, you know? And now like people talk about it a lot. Right. And, and the great thing about it is that, it's textured enough and it's deep enough that like people like interesting things and mixed grass prairie is just way more interesting than mowing fescue. Right. And so I think, I think that it's likely to stick. The weird thing about it though, um, is that actually something similar happened in the seventies. And I think, I think there is some like a very relevant business metaphor here where in, in the, in the seventies, home cooking and houseplants exploded in a very similar way to what's happened in the last five years. You know, Julia Childs, that whole, that whole deal led to then um, a guy named Chuck Williams, I think, in, in Sonoma, California, starting a business where he was importing kitchen stuff, European kitchen supplies, started to sell them. And that equivalent thing never really happened in houseplants. Williams Sonoma obviously grew into this like incredible company. And I wonder sometimes how much you know, what, what is retail, but it's, it's distilling complicated things into concise stories that people can quickly consume and then maybe even, even take home with them. Right. You're like, it's this incredible, like focusing of something into a package that people can consume despite whether or not they really want to without investing too much effort. And that happened in home cooking in the seventies, but it didn't happen with plants. And it's my hope that today uh, with the internet and our ability to share information a lot more rapidly and with the ability to use plant recognition software on our phones, uh, that, that it will stick a little bit better, that we're, we're distilling the information better so that a, a more broad cross-section of people can get into it. So here you are journeying from the life that you've shared with us and you're leading this organization. Do you think of yourself as a leader and how do you define that role? You know, do I think of myself as a leader? I, I think that I have to be. 
It's probably more how I think about it. And how do I define it? You know, how do I, how do we, and I'm a, I'm a leader among, you know, it's cool. I work with uh, a lot of people who've been doing this for a lot longer than me, right? And I've had the good fortune of spending a lot of time with people who um, are leaders in a lot of different dimensions. So there's like, there's the business leaders at our place, um, you know, the directors of divisions or departments or whatever. But then there's like Nancy, who's the leader of, if you want to know anything about a fruit tree, like everyone knows that you talk to Nancy, right? Or if you want to know about annual bedding plants, like Barb is your gal, right? But if you want to know about how to give feedback, I work with a guy named Mark, who's remarkably good at that. And so I think the dimensions on which I can be most helpful, which is probably how I would think of being a leader, is that um, I think I can do, you know, how do I help distill the story that is our business into language that a broad cross-section of people can share? And um, how can I help locate that equilibrium point between the wants of our customers and the the wants of our team members, you know, where do we, where do we need to put that? And then I think the hardest part and the surprise, I wish someone would have told me ahead of it, but also right. The, the necessary discipline of maintaining that focus and maintaining the grit to just do something that's really, really hard. You know, I'm the kind of guy that like, it takes a lot of work for me just to drive to work the same way every day. You know, there's two bridges I can take. I live in Ashland. If I don't remind myself like about, you know, the nature and importance of discipline. That's a, that's a decision I, that every day that I would get kind of excited to make. It's not very helpful. What are some of the lessons that you have carried forward from your predecessors, whether it's family members that you look up to or other mentors along this journey? You know, there's so many books to read and there's so many things to, to listen to. But if there's one thing that has kept our place going, like the people that came before me simply cared more. They just cared more. You know, there's a, I like this guy, James Carsey, he wrote a book called Finite and Infinite Games. He's a NYU theologian from like the eighties. And, and, and he talks about life as gameplay. And he talks about this idea of, of life as this collection of, of, of games, finite games, games you play to win and infinite games, games you, you, you play to keep on playing. And, Simon Sinek has really, really popularized his words and does some TED Talks about it and stuff. But if you read Carsey's book, it's very short, almost like aphoristic. But I think like if there's something, if there's one thing that I think really makes our place possible, because we're like, I, and I say this a lot, people think I'm joking. We're just not that good at business. And like, we don't, we don't really want to be, right? And like we're, you know, Yvonne Chouinard uses the words, right? And like, like we, we aim at a healthy distrust of authority. And it verges on unhealthy a lot of the time. So it's not like we're super structured, but Nancy's just not going anywhere so long as like there's fruit trees out there and like people need them. And that's a remarkable thing to be trading in something that people just care about that, that much. I've often asked people what community means to them. And so I want to ask you the same question and from two perspectives. One is from that of a business owner that has a business that is fairly prominently well known in its field in this region, but also personally, what community means to you. So I'm curious about how you think about and define those and, and perhaps manifest that in your life. No, I, 
I think I think about that a lot, actually. I think the community is about a sense of belonging. Um, I think that belonging is really driven by shared values. And I think that we as as creatures deeply crave belonging. And and values, particularly in 21st century America, you know, there just isn't the tradition that there used to be of of them being passed down somewhat automatically, right? Like after the Second World War. Like our our country in a lot of ways shifted away from like this this historical value source of religion. You know, I was just talking with a couple of people that I work with this morning about how um, we had an event at our place for Earth Day, and how a, a gal who I work with ran into a, a friend of hers, and they've been friends for a long time from sand volleyball, and she works at a not for profit that we really look up to, and she was at our store for our event, and like how much that meant, and how much of like my life. Like, like how, how novel that is today, right? How novel the experience of real shared values is today, right? As opposed to shared interests or shared hobbies, which I think are importantly different. When you invest in that curiosity and that curiosity happens to find something that has like deep and real meaning, and then that meaning then leads to that belonging, which leads to that community or that community leads to that belonging or however that goes, it's hard to go about it a different way. And I think that, yeah, I consider myself very fortunate that um, I've never not known that because of my experience at this weird place that happens to sell plants kind of wedged in between these creeks. Like, when you think deeply about what matters, like why the hell are we here and why the hell are you here? What really matters that you think is, is integral to being alive? I don't think the answer to that is saying as much, right? I think that I, I don't think there are words to describe it. I think that I get way closer to that answer watching three flickers, you know, chase each other around with people that I care about. And uh, even just saying that right now feels almost inadequate, right? I can't speak for other people, but for myself, the more time that I can spend curious about what came before me and what's outside, right? Like I like to fish, like the mystery of waiting to see what the fish is, uh, I think is probably when I feel the most alive. And I mean that metaphorically as much as practically I had to go fishing last weekend. It was super fun. Actually though, a story I was in, a friend of mine was living of all places in, in Kyrgyzstan and I went there and I visited him. He was living in this bike hostel. So there's a lot of people from the Netherlands and different places in Europe that like to ride their bikes across to through China. And they all have to stop in Kyrgyzstan so they can get visas to bike through China. And I was talking with this guy who liked to go for these really long hikes alone. And he told me this story. And I, I, I was sitting there at this table talking to him about that and uh, liking to hike alone. And he loved it. And I... I I said, was there anything you don't like about it? Because I've never done that. He said, yeah. You know, every once in a while something crazy happens, something incredible happens. He told me the story about seeing this eagle kind of on this mountain. And because of the inadequacy of our words, um, he, he just so wishes that someone else could have been there to have experienced that with him so that they could have this. So I suppose that, you know, for me, spending more time outside with people that I care about experiencing kind of wild, mysterious things. I feel like you're describing this manifestation of meaning in life 
through acts of doing, being present and seeing beyond the experience into, into its meaning. And you said something earlier describing this California garden center, Rogers Gardens, I think you did. And you said that um, it was so idyllic, it, it didn't feel like real life. But is that what you're trying to create, not only at Mulhorse, but just generally in your life? Something that opening a doorway to experiences and landscapes and encounters that are so idyllic that they almost transcend what seems to be real life. I wouldn't give myself credit for that intention, but I mean, that, that sounds, that sounds awesome. I'm a, I'm a romantic person. I think I'd have to be a lot better at my job to aim that high. You know, like I think that right now it's much more, I work with this incredibly broad, I, I work with so many more people with so much talent than we have opportunities for in a business our size that I spend most of my day, um, one, trying to, to keep that aligned, but two, then also trying to maximize like what each individual person is capable of. And that's a very, like, what, like if you're really responding to the unique talents of, of unique people showing up in a place, it's a much more winding road than I think I would have thought it would be. But I think that if people really like what we do, and at the end of the day, we believe that we are that we are making our community our community a more beautiful place, and we we believe that people's lives are generally moving closer to the natural world. I think we're doing I think we're doing good. That's probably the end. And then I, you know, yeah, email more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is kind of funny how we're talking. I almost feel like I'm like this is disingenuous. Like I, I feel like I need to say I e I email full time. I love to go outside every once in a while, but my debt my job is remarkably like the actual stuff of my work is like, I think it's 90% being behind on email. Now, 70% being behind on email and 30% being late to meetings. I feel like that's actually what like happens, you know, on a day-to-day basis. But it's nice to to talk sometimes about what's underneath that, you know. Well, that's the definition of a CEO. It's, it's like a being held accountable for being late at meetings or not having to be held accountable for being late at meetings. Yeah, I need to be on time. My, uh, <laughs> I, need, I need to work on that. What do you hope is the future of the business, but also what do you hope is the future of, of how we as a community, how we as people change, shift, um, perhaps have a, a, um, a different mindset relationship with nature? What I know there's so many other factors at play, but what do you hope that relationship looks like in, in the future? You know, the best, the, I really look up to a guy named Aldo Leopold and he wrote a book called the Sand County Almanac and my friend Greg gave it to me. I will always be grateful to Greg for, he wrote a little inscription in the front and I, I get to read it every time I open up uh, Leopold's book. And, and in it, in the introduction, he talks about, he talks about this crisis being the result of a, of a shift in values and he also talks about the solution to this environmental crisis requiring the same shift back in values from you know this, these values today of things unnatural and tame and confined um, into terms more natural, wild, and free. And I think about like my early childhood and the early childhood of so many people that I work with. Of you know, and, and he opens the book by saying, right, there are some who who can live without the wild things and some who cannot, right? These essays are the delights and dilemmas of one who cannot. And, and what does it mean for us, for our business, one, to be a place where, where people who are, are a little more wild and feel more comfortable around the wild things feel comfortable? 
But then beyond that, for us as a community, and community most like broadly understood, um, to see value in that, right? To see value not only in environments unnatural uh, or in natural, wild and free, but also like in people who who simply more value more natural, wild and free, and 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 letting people kind of be who they are and what they want to be, and not worrying so much about it. And I think. Uh, as a business, a good test is if Mother Nature doesn't care about it, right, ought we? Her concerns seem to be much more narrow than ours most of the time. It seems like in some ways you were describing yourself there, that idea of being wild and free. It feels like you have described your character as being someone who is wild and free, always living at those peripheries, the boundaries of what's expected, and what we accept. And you feel comfort. Uh, seeing the wild and free in the world around you, whether it's these three northern flickers or something else happening in the natural world, fishing or otherwise. Is this really a description of you too? I, I would think of it more as a description of the people that I, that I really look up to. And it is my, my hope that with what talents I have, that I can help create an environment, right? Where, where what I look up to so much in those people can be even more celebrated and, and make the impact that I know that, that I see that it can have, right? That it has had on my life. My guest today has been Mick Mulhall, third generation owner of Mulhall's Nursery and Garden Center. Mick, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.